0: are continuing our our way through Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We are now at Luke chapter 19. It's interesting, uh, next week we're going to see Jesus uh, enter into the city of Jerusalem. We're going to see the, uh, you know, the the last bits. It's hard to believe we've come this far and yet still have a ways to go. Uh, Not in distance, but Jesus only has to get to Jerusalem and and he's right outside of it. Uh, Anyway, Uh, Luke 19, if you will, head that way, a phone, something. If you want a Bible, there's some on the welcome table right where you you came in today. You can feel free to get up and get one if you want. Uh, So as you're headed that way, I do want to kind of just tell you a quick little story. One semester while Laura and I were uh, at Texas A&M as as students, we took this summer job that was working in the library. We had no idea what it was going to be, but what we ended up being was shifting books from one side of the library to the other one. We became this human machine almost. You'd take a big stack of books and hand it to the next person through a uh, stack, and it would go to the other side of the library until eventually someone would set it on, and I never felt more like a cog in a machine than, than this in my entire life. Uh, there are about 20 of us, um, and, and what we noticed that was so interesting was that we, we had this uh, supervisor. Her name was actually Dorcas, which we thought was hilarious, but it's a biblical name in case you're looking for a name for a child. Um, but we found that all of our, we'd all like work really diligently, and, and then the second that Dorcas got on the elevator to leave the floor, suddenly everything would slow down. Some of our, our coworkers would absolutely stop. They'd be like, "Let's just wait for a while and do nothing." Um, and it was just this weird kind of sense, and, and you've probably seen this before. Whatever you work at, you, you probably notice there's this mindset of work ethic that tends to wane whenever the boss is away. No one's watching, no one knows what's going on, we can do whatever we want, and it just tends to, to be this laziness that takes over. Now, hopefully as, as Christians, we, we don't live this way because we, we want to live in a, in a biblical way, in the way that we're instructed in Colossians three twenty three and 24, which tells us, Wh- whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the, Lord's, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that verse was a big part of the, the last men's thing. Uh, some of you men might recognize that. we got discussed a bit. Uh, so anyway, this parable that we're, we're reading here in a minute, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's kind of weird. Uh, a lot of these parables of Jesus are kind of weird. These are the ones you might want to skip, you don't skip, uh, because it's the word of God and we want to learn from it. Now, to, to help us understand it, or rather this parable is here to help us understand how you and me live as Christians in 2020, how we as Christians still awaiting the return of our Lord, the return of our, our master, our, our king, and as we wait, how do we live? This parable also teaches us as, that, that God calls all Christians, not just pastors, not just missionaries and campus ministers, but all Christians to, to work, not to earn God's love, not to earn God's salvation, but to work for the purposes of God, to invest in the kingdom until Jesus returns. So we don't just sit back and, and twiddle our thumbs and, until... The Lord returns. And, and so let's, let's read that, right? I've set this up as a weird parable. I think you'll agree with me. It's weird. Uh, but anyway, let's read it and then we'll seek to really understand it. Um, Luke 19, beginning in verse 11. <clears throat> as they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The first came before him, saying, "'Lord, your mina has made ten minas more.' And he said to him, "'Well done, good servant, "'because you have been faithful in very little. "'You shall have authority over ten cities.' And the second came, saying, "'Lord, your mina has made five minas.' And he said to him, "'And you are to be over five cities.' Then another came, saying, "'Lord, here is your mina, "'which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. "'For I was afraid of you, "'because you are a severe man. "'You take what you did not deposit "'and reap what you did not sow.' He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servants. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I I tell you that to everyone who has more, who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we want to learn from your word, your holy scriptures. We want to understand the meaning of this seemingly strange, certainly uncomfortable parable. And so we are asking you this In this moment, Lord, just mute our mental distractions and please enlighten our minds to understand your glorious word and what we might learn from it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the key to making sense out of this parable, the overarching idea here is is verse 11, if you look back there. There, there we, we learn that Jesus is telling this parable to people for two different reasons, right? Uh, one, the first reason, because his followers are expecting this, this kingdom of God to be this political and military might that's going to come in power, right? That's what they're expecting. And two, because they're expecting it very soon, they think we're going to Jerusalem and that's where it's going to happen when we arrive there. Now, if you remember the last few weeks as we've been going through chapters 17, 18, and even 19, uh, we've been seeing Jesus saying, you know what, we're going to Jerusalem. That's where I'm going. I'm going to accomplish salvation. I'm I'm going to be killed. Uh, I'm going to lay down my life, and and then I'm going to be resurrected. And and that's what he keeps saying to his disciples. But his disciples keep saying back to him, uh, or they keep hearing from him, rather, "We're, we're rising to power. We're, we're going to take back the land. We are going to overthrow Rome. We are going to bring about power. We're going to bring about peace for the Jews. It, it's going to be awesome. And so they have this idea, something along the lines of, we're going to get to Jerusalem, uh, and, and Jesus is going to gather this army, maybe doing miracles to recruit people, and we're going to conquer Jerusalem. And, and so Jesus is telling this parable to them to correct their zealous, wonderfully zealous but misdirected hopes. So that they're going to understand that, well, 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 God is going to come in power. That it's not going to happen on this arrival to Jerusalem. And, and so they understand that there's still work to be done so that the gospel, that this hope can, can reach the nations. And, and so Jesus is, is teaching them. He's teaching us what, what we are to do while we await the return of our Savior and, and the fullness, the coming of the, the kingdom. And so that parable begins in verse twelve. A, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and, and then to return. You're seeing the analogy here already. The nobleman Jesus comes from heaven to earth, and after his death on the cross, after his resurrection, after his ascension to the Father, he, he, you know Jesus will then come again to reign as the King of all kings. Now, before the nobleman goes, he calls ten of his servants to him, and he he gives each of them, it's a little worded weird, there's ten of them, and he gives ten minas. It's one mina per person. And he's saying, here's your mina. While I'm gone, I want you to invest it. Uh, A a mina, I probably need to define that. None of you collect minas, do you? Uh, A mina is simply a quantity of money. It's a fairly large quantity of money by most people's standards. About three months' salary is what it equates to. Uh, and, And so that's what they have to invest. Uh, this is a command, right, that the, the noble man gives to his servants to be obeyed, a command to take what the master has given them and then go put it to work. That's what they're to do. And, and remember, though, it's, it's a parable. It, it's not money that Jesus gives us, nor is it money that Jesus expects to collect when he returns. Uh, as, as we continue, I just want you to remember that the, the mina in this illustration that Jesus gives us is, is simply the gospel message. That's That's the mina. And then the prophet that Jesus is wanting to see when he returns is, is redeemed souls. That's, that's what happens from investing the mina. Uh, so in verse 14, there, there's a second story going on. It's mixed into the first one. This is the one that's a little weirder. Uh, there are citizens, they hate the nobleman and they want to stop him from being inaugurated king, right? And so we just don't like this guy. They refuse to acknowledge his reign over him. They reject his authority and they refuse to submit to him uh, as their king. These citizens, in the illustration, as Jesus is telling this parable, represent uh, many of the Jewish people who have hated Jesus, particularly the the Pharisaical leaders uh, who just have hated Jesus. The, The story then jumps forward to the return of the king, which is the second coming of Christ. And while there are 10 servants, right, that have each been given a mina, we only learn about what three of them actually do with them, what the results are. The first says this, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. The second says, Lord, your mina has made 5 minas more. Now, I was a philosophy major in, in college. I was not a business major. I do not have an MBA, nor do I know what those initials actually stand for. But even I know that a 1,000% profit of the first servant and a 500% profit of the second servant is really, really impressive investment. Uh, I believe that most investors would be happy to see that. Uh, now, did you notice the, the humility in their statements, right? They, they don't say, like most of us would, Look what I made! I made ten a thousand percent, right? Be impressed. Uh, Instead, they're saying your mina has made ten minas more. They're they're not acknowledging it as as their own, you know, wonder investors in any sort. But simply look what's happened because I invested it like you told me to. And in this little nuance, Jesus is teaching us that the gospel grows not, not by our great wisdom, not because of our amazing strategy, but the gospel grows by the power, by its own power, right? It grows by the power of God Himself who makes it to grow. And, and still, because of the servants' faithfulness to invest it, right? That's what they've been told to do. The king says, Well done, good servant. The, the faithfulness of the servants is significant. Even in what what the investor deems a very small thing, it says uh, Hudson Taylor once said, "A little thing is just a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing that is a great thing. This parable is is teaching us that when Jesus returns, he will Praise his faithful servants, even proportionately. That's what we see here. After all, right? The man with the the ten minas was put over ten cities, cities, and the man with the five minas over five cities. And and did you notice here though that the reward is is not the kind of things we tend to think of rewards? It's it's not here's your white Mercedes, well done on your sales and your investing. It, it's not this massive house in a beautiful neighborhood. the The reward here is this greater opportunity for faithful service in, in the kingdom. It, it's some it's a, a sense of some sort of promotion that you have more responsibility for the same stuff. Now, um, what that looks like at Jesus' return is not real clear in this passage. It's not real clear anywhere else in, in the Scriptures. All I can say about this is simply it's something that we desire. It's something we want to be true for us. And again, remember, this isn't about salvation, but both of the faithful servants are welcomed into the kingdom by grace alone. Absolutely. This is something that once you are a child of God that he is, he is giving his people to do while he's gone. Uh, so then we come to the third servant who says, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept, in, uh, kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Do you feel sorry for this man? The, I mean, do you feel sorry for this third servant? After all, here he is. He's terrified of this king now. He even gives these reasons why, like, I, I, I couldn't succeed at this because of all these reasons. Listen, listen though, don't, don't miss what's going on here. It's so easy that we just, we kind of are like, oh, it's in the scripture, so whatever words come out of this guy's mouth, even in a parable, it must be absolutely true. Uh, don't miss what's going on. The, the third servant is, is no servant at all. He, he is in complete defiance of what the master has told him to do. He he was instructed, put this mina to work, and instead, what did he do? He took it and he hid it. That's not what he was instructed to do. What's going on here is he's giving an excuse for his own failure, his own refusal to do it. And he's blaming the king for why he disobeyed. We've probably done this in our life, most of us, probably all of us, making some excuse, uh, blaming a boss, blaming a teacher, a supervisor of some sort for the reason you did not do what they asked you to do. Right? I, I just I couldn't do it because it's really hard. What, whatever it might be. Um, furthermore, the third servant's words are are slander. They, they are. We've just seen the master be very generous to his faithful servants, and by providing the first man, and he certainly sowed, he put into that, right? He was the investor. And, and remember, the meaner represents the gospel message. So so it might be a good time as we're reading through this to begin asking ourselves along that question: what have I done? with the gospel message that I have received and believed? Really deep down, have I invested in in souls or have I hid it away? I'm afraid many professing Christians today view the Lord just like the third servant. If you're like the third servant, the third man, I I challenge you to reevaluate your relationship with with Jesus, Not, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord, as someone words matter to you many Christians today are we're afraid to talk about our faith at times we ought not be many refuse to invest their money in gospel purposes many are unwilling to trust the lord in life uh, to trust the holy spirit to work in amazing ways that will grow our faith as we see god work don't be in verse 22 we we see the king's response to this slander uh You really got to look closely here. You're going to miss what's happening. Uh, The the king is not agreeing with the slander of the third servant. It sounds a little like that at first. But but he's saying this. He's saying, fine, let's let's just use your words. Let's follow out this logic that you're using to its logical conclusion and and see if your excuse is even reasonable to begin with. Look at verse 22 with me. Uh, The king says, I will condemn you with your own words, right? We're going to look at your words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. Taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. You're going to raise your voice at the end, right? Because there's a question mark. You see it there? Uh, this is what you really thought? Verse 23, the king continues. If that's the case, if this is really what you thought, and here he goes, he says, why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming? I might have collected it with interest. He's saying, you, you think I'm severe, you're afraid of me, of what I might do to you. If you were really afraid of me, then you, would have, you wouldn't have hid the mina. You wouldn't have disobeyed completely. You, you would have at least made the very safe investment and put it in the bank so there's something when I return. You would have at least put it in a very cautious way to invest it. Listen, the, the, the third servant is, is self-focused. He, he's trying to escape from the reality that he did not obey the servant here. At this point, and he's come up with all these excuses. He, he didn't invest the riches the king entrusted with him, and, and Jesus labels this third servant a wicked man. What else do you call a servant who hears his master's commands and refuses to obey him, and then slanders his master as an excuse for that disobedience? L- listen, many have debated whether this third servant in the parable, is, is this someone who's saved or not? Is this a, a genuine Christian or not? It's an interesting discussion. In fact, go ahead and have that discussion over lunch today uh, with whoever you're with. It's a fun discussion to have, but, but really when it gets down to it, you don't even need the answer to it because either way, this is not the kind of servant you, you need to seek after being. None of us should be like, well, I'm convinced he's saved, so I'm going to do the least I can possibly do, and, and that's what I'm aiming for right there. That's not the, the mentality that we want to take on, but do have that conversation. That's a lot of fun. Uh, the storyline in the parable ends with the third man's mina being handed over to the servant who had ten minas, and of course, uh, the other ones there uh, don't like this idea. They get upset. They're exclaiming, but, but he already has ten why does he get another one? Any parent ever knows, has heard basically this in your life at some point, basically what they're saying is that's not fair. He, he already has more. And, and the reason here is that the king is, that's the servant he's trusting with his money because he's seen him be faithful in what he's asked him to do already. You, you're the same way with your money, I promise. If you asked Isaac Shanahan to invest your money, he's, how old are you, Isaac? Ten, so you made a mistake to begin with, probably. Um, But you ask him to invest your money, and he goes and squanders it all by buying Beanie Babies, thinking these are going to be worth a lot soon. Uh, You're not going to come back and give Isaac more of your money to invest later on. You're just not going to do that. You know, this time, you know, you, you... you're going to trust Fad with your money over here on the other side. That Dunning, who who made a huge profit because he was smart before he was born, he invested in Amazon and Google, and now he is crazy rich. That's the guy you're going to trust with your money at this point. Okay, that that's what's going on here. That's the faithful servant that I'm going to trust. So finally, then the story swings back to those citizens that hate the king. the the citizens that really want to get trending on Twitter. The hashtag Not My King. Uh, and just hate him. So verse 27, the, the king says, But but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What? Th- these are the things that are uncomfortable when you read in scripture, because you're thinking, but Jesus is the the manager, right? He's the, the nobleman, the king. In this instant, the parable becomes a Tarantino film, and and it's just weird. Slaughter my enemies? That's odd. That's uncomfortable. This this is the kind of passage uh, that you kind of want to hide from your unbelieving friends. Because it just seems brutal. Because you can already hear their their, their revulsion in their voice as they're asking that question. Oh, this is your God right here? He just slaughters anyone who disagrees with him, anyone who doesn't love him. That's what he does. So, so listen, you, you can't view this through the, the, the Western idea of democracy, okay? I like democracy, but that's not anyone's mind in, going on in this when it's being written. That's not the context uh, of this passage. In, in the culture, the, the king has 100% authority. You do not vote for the king. He's your king. You, you don't... You don't get to like, fill out a survey to say, I am, I am 30% pleased with how my king's doing. I'd like a new one. That's no option. He's just your king, okay? It, this is the king, but, but here are citizens. The, these citizens that, are, that hate him, they're committing treason against the king and against the kingdom in which they belong or should belong. And, and there's two things to learn here as, as we look at this. First, the servant's... The servants don't take it upon themselves to slaughter the king's enemy while he's away. I think that's important for us to know as Christians today, right? That the king orders it on his return. It's his authority. It has not been given to his servants. We we should never slaughter any, in in, in any any sense of the word, we should never slaughter the enemies of God. We invest the gospel in them in the hope that God will, will make them also to be faithful servants in the kingdom. The second thing we learn here is when Jesus makes his royal return, he will punish every traitor, every rebel who has not received his grace and remain enemies. And it's not a, a fun word to hear, but it's a very biblical idea we see throughout. It's, it'll be as Second Thessalonians 1, 7, and 9 paints it. Uh, there we read, "...when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his might." You don't have to like that, but it's a biblical idea. It's okay if that idea even terrifies you on some level. When when Christ returns, there will not be any traitors in the kingdom. That's a good thing. And, And so, by the grace of God, do not be a traitor. Seek the Lord, love the Lord, pursue faithfulness to the Lord. And if you're worried about anyone else, whether they might be considered a traitor in the kingdom of God, this, this is why we go out with the gospel. This is why we're thankful for this in-between period between uh, the, the ascension of the Lord and the return of the Lord. Because there's time. So in, in summary, right, if we had to Twitter summarize this, um, here's the parable the, the king entrusts his servants the king goes away. Enemies reject the king. The king returns. He evaluates his servant's investments. Blesses the faithful servant. Servants punishes the unfaithful servant and slaughters the enemies of the kingdom. What do we do with this? See, at the most basic level, Jesus is teaching us to be faithful servants of His. To be to work diligently. For the purposes of our king and, and the kingdom while he's away. And Jesus is away right now. We, we live in the already not yet. It's a, a term you might hear us use often. The, the kingdom has been announced. The king is on the throne. Jesus reigns in the hearts of his people today. But he's still coming back to reign fully in a way that we haven't quite experienced yet. If you're a Christian, you are a citizen in the kingdom of God. Of, of, of God, and that's the way that the Apostle Paul describes it right in, in those terms Colossians 1 thirteen Paul writes, God has delivered us from the domin- domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. do you hear that that to be a Christian is to be to be removed from one kingdom right the kingdom of darkness and to be transferred into a new kingdom, the kingdom of our God there there is that that change of citizenship uh, that has gone from one to another Tim's not with us today but uh, Tim Durrett, right? Born a citizen of Zimbabwe, but he had to give up that citizenship to become a citizen of of the United States. He also knows more about American history than I bet any of us do. Uh, That's something you have to do when they come over, but that has nothing to do with this. the fullness of the kingdom, though, it's, it's, it's not here yet, even though we are members in this, citizens in this kingdom. It's still a, a future reality. And so, we, we're, we're saved from the penalty of our sin now. We are saved from the power of sin now. But we are not yet saved from the presence of sin in and around us. That will come later. It, it, it's not what it will be yet. And so, this in-between is, is where we live. <clears throat> you may be voting for a president next week, or no, not next week, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but if you're a Christian, you already have a king. And, and while our king is currently away, he has entrusted us with work to do. If we're honest, we, we can relate to the people that Jesus is telling this parable to, uh, the ones that are being addressed that we see back in verse 11, right? That are expecting the kingdom to come. That's what we want, right? Because they, they wanted to see the kingdom fulfilled right away. They wanted to see God's glory and all its power right away over his enemies right away. We want that too. We, we want to be in the fully realized kingdom. Where we no longer feel tempted to, to lust or to steal or to lie, to impress people. Where, where our holy God, and instead of a court of nine judges, determines what's right and wrong in the land. We, we want to live in the, in the kingdom where we no longer feel the weight of our daily failures and disappointments. We, like Jesus' disciples then, long to see the kingdom come in its absolute fullness. And that's a good thing. It is not bad to long for that. And still the question for us with this passage lingers there as we live in this already and not yet uh, world, right? It it lingers for us. Uh, What are we to do? What what do we do in this time of not yet? Every servant of the Lord, every Christian has been entrusted with something of great value. It's not a mina, which is good because we don't really know what that means when you do now, but it's not a term we use we're entrusted with the gospel message. Just as 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. and So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So do you hear me here? Jesus has entrusted you with the gospel. And now, spiritually speaking, Jesus, your master, is, is telling you to be a venture capitalist. That's what we're being asked to do. And, and so what are you, are you doing with the gospel the Lord has entrusted you with? Because what we actually do with our time, our money, our words, our relationships, what we do with the gospel has eternal significance. Truly. And so ask yourself, how, how am I putting the gospel to work? What return am I seeing or, that God is making by this investment that I would have to, to show Him when Jesus returns? Let's... Then finish by considering two two ways we in, invest the gospel. The, the first one is this: we invest the gospel in our own lives by increasingly learning what it means to be faithful servants of our Lord. There's many passages we could go to, but I, I did want to read one from Titus two eleven through fourteen, where we are told that the grace of God, that the gospel has come. And that it is, and I'll read to you now, "...training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawliness and to purify himself for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works." In there, you begin to see at least some wide-angle ways that we invest the gospel into our lives. Uh, go back to that passage later today. Read it slowly. Maybe tomorrow morning, Titus two, uh, eleven through 14, and, and, and read through that just slowly. We, we also invest the gospel in, in our own Christian lives through repentance. Right? When we come to the Lord trusting him, knowing that there is grace for us when we come, we, we do so through Prayer. We do so with daily dependence upon the Holy Spirit for us. We, we do so by trusting God to meet our needs, by serving people in need, showing the love and the mercy of Christ to, to people who are lonely and sick and homeless and grieving and angry and afraid. By loving our families with the love of Jesus, by making a personal investment in missionary work, praying or giving, sending, going. We, we put the gospel to work by carrying out our ordinary callings in a way that shows the supremacy of Christ and our delight in Him, daily. The employee does this with diligent labor, the mother with nurture and care for her children, the student with his learning, the professor with her scholarship, the lawyer with his justice, the artist with her Godward creativity. Whatever your vocational calling, if it's done for the glory of God, it's an investment in the kingdom of God. The second and more explicit to this passage is way that we invest in the kingdom of, of God is simply by offering the hope of the gospel message in clear and compelling ways. We're to invest by asking questions that lead people to ask deeper questions about who God is. We, we do so by, by, by teaching the gospel to our children, to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our roommates, friends, enemies, strangers across the globe or down the hall. And, and we've been gifted in various ways so that we can invest the gospel in different places, different circles of influence, whether, whether we're talking about academics or arts or dorms or mechanical industry, um, whatever doors that you can walk into because of your abilities, because of your relationships, uh, that others in this room simply cannot walk through and build those relationships. Now don't panic. I know when we read passages like this, they can be overwhelming, like there's so much I have to do. This isn't about the, the love of God for you. You do this because God loves you, because you know what it means to receive grace, because you understand what, what a glorious thing it, it is to, to have the gospel invested in you. So, so don't panic in this responsibility. All, all Jesus is saying here is, is for your life to be one of ordinary, faithful service to God. And, and he's indwelled you with the Holy Spirit for every step of that. And remember, it's, it's not the numbers or the amounts of increase in the minas that garners the king's approval and commendation of the servants. The, the servant whose, whose mina made five more was just as faithful as the one who added ten. If the wicked servant had simply invested in the bank, just in the most smallest of ways, the king says that would have been faithful. That's what he failed to do. God wants your heart, and that means your faithfulness, your your obedience in this area. He commands us only to sow the gospel. He will do the work of growing that effort. Simply invest it. And so, brothers, sisters, don't give up on faithful, ordinary living. Keep looking for ways to further invest the gospel message that you have been entrusted with. And and don't fear the return of our Lord. Look forward to it. Expect blessing. Remember, we're not alone even now as we have access to the Father through prayer, as we have the spiritual presence of Jesus through the sacrament, as we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with us every moment of every day. And so church, let's seek to be venture capitalists in the kingdom of God, investing the gospel wherever we can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Make us wise, make us diligent to invest our lives in kingdom purpose. Give us the boldness to talk about Jesus. Give us the opportunities to talk about Jesus. With the aim of your glory, Uh, with the the hope of seeing the hope that we have received come to others. Glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.